0: Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula.
1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the Modern Pain Podcast. I am your host, Mark Cargela. Tonight, I'm fired up to have Marcos sabor. I know Marcos uh, relatively well just from him working with us at Modern Pain Care. He is a uh, lead instructor, and he also um, has a pretty, good, pretty cool career path that he's gone on and, and a little uh, awesome practice that he's got going that he's going to share with us that I think you guys are going to get a bunch of pearls from tonight. Um, But Marcos has been helping us. He's uh, been one of our virtual mentors and helping us uh, work with our students and folks that have taken some of our online coursework. Um, So Marcos has been a big part of our team and we're happy to have him aboard. But uh, most importantly, Marcos has been a huge value to a lot of our students just as far as being able to um, share his knowledge of opioids and his unique perspective on it, seeing that, as you'll hear, hear from him soon, that he's working with it pretty much day in and day out in a very uh pretty intense setting when it comes to opioid use and opioid addiction and different things that uh, he'll share tonight so without any further ado marcos i'm gonna bring you on sir welcome to the podcast
2: hey man thanks uh thanks for having me
1: tell the folks about your background because i think you have a unique background in current practice setting that i think gives you some um you know good perspective to share what you're going to talk about tonight
2: Yeah, sure. I'll give a little uh, brief background around my history in physical therapy and how I got to where I am uh, now uh, working. Uh, I would say, frontline addressing uh, opioid use disorder and opioid dependence in patients who have persistent pain. Um, but I, I'm a physical therapist by trade. You know, I've been practicing for like six, seven years. Uh, I lose track of time now as, as we're getting older. And uh, I, too, have gone through the route of a lot of extensive certification training, residency trained, orthopedic certified specialist, recent graduate of EIM's um, uh, fellowship program, and, and done all that stuff, and and uh, and what through that process, it got me to where I am now. So I moved to San Antonio almost two years ago, and uh, pretty quickly was um, through my uh, clinic director Andrew Bennett. I was he approached me after I'd been there like three months and said, "Hey, I've got an opportunity for you." Um, we've got this, uh, you know, this substance use disorder clinic that we're going to try to partner with and we need to get a guy in there to be a frontline PT to help these people out. Um, the, the, the name of the place is called New Hope uh, and it's based in San Antonio. And my role with them has been uh, twofold. So, um, one, I go there on a weekly basis and I have a um, pain class, if you will. Um, and, and it's a a session where it's a group. I'm not, I, I, you know, I'm not going to call it a group counseling session because I'm not a counselor, but it's group discussion. It's group think, group thought around pain. And it is, you know, some folks would maybe consider it a pain neuroscience education session. Uh, it has a feel and a flavor of that, partly because we need to establish some common knowledge and there's people cycling in and out. You know, on a, on a given Thursday, there could be two new people there, and we could be talking about some concepts and sharing some experiences that are novel to them. So there has to be a little bit of uh, revolving information that we that we cycle through. Now, I also function with them as their physical therapist throughout their uh, opioid taper process. And so they will come see me at my clinic. I'm at Texas uh, physical therapy specialist, and they'll come see me there. Um, And then I will work with them as they're tapering down um, or once they get to a certain point where they are on a manageable dose and the withdrawal symptoms are relatively at bay. And then they come to see us, or you know, they come to see me, because hey, why did they start taking prescription opioids in the in the very beginning? Because they had an underlying chronic pain condition, or they had an acute pain condition, which led to dependence of the substance, which you know translated down the path of where they are now. <clears throat> so that's that's kind of in a nutshell of where how I got to where I am and where I am now uh, today, working with these folks.
1: Yeah, and I think that's awesome that we have physios because obviously we, we serve a good role as far as getting people back to their lives and ver valued activities in a obviously non-narcotic uh, form of treatment so I think we fit in nicely and it's awesome to see that you're kind of you don't I don't think I know too many other folks in your situation who are doing what you're doing I know there might be a few but uh, I think you're kind of laying some fresh ground for some folks to hopefully tread with you to kind of get into that so that's what a lot of tonight's going to be is just seeing if you can share some of your perspective your experience and maybe help some other folks who are because I think we all on this podcast are working with people who deal with opioid dependence and opioid addiction and, and different you know concepts that we'll talk about tonight. I'm just curious if you could kind of give us a little bit of the background. Uh, I mean, some of us probably, you know, you watch the news, it doesn't take much to know that we're in trouble with the opioids and all, that, all this things that you see on social media. But I'm just curious if you could kind of, for those that might not be too aware of kind of the severity of how, just how bad it is, um, if you could shed some light on kind of where we were where we are and maybe where we're hopefully headed
2: yeah part of this will be dropping a little bit of just statistics to create awareness around the situation you know funny enough a a few days ago i was reading an article that was talking about how this is actually technically considered the third opioid crisis in the history of the united states the first one started in the early 1990 uh, 1900s uh, after the civil war uh, the second one around uh, the Vietnam War, which is related more to the heroin use, which led us now to where we are now considered the third uh, opioid crisis that the United States has seen. Um, and just to give you some stats for those who may not be aware of it. And, and these change. I mean, when I was starting this journey, even a couple of years ago, just getting more invested, the numbers were were less. I mean, every year, it's it's a exponential increase um, to the point that uh, on a daily basis, uh, roughly 130 people die a day from opioid overdose. Uh, that's that's one roughly every 12 minutes. Uh, <clears throat> Roughly every 25 minutes a baby is born with neonatal abstinence syndrome And what that is is that when the infant and the baby is born they are bu- they are born experiencing withdrawal symptoms uh, because uh, Their mother birthed them while they were on these prescription drugs and they have themselves as a baby an infant um, <clears throat> dependence towards the opioids. and um, you know, and then you start looking at the flip side, uh, you know, heroin rates have, and deaths of associated heroin have increased five times, fivefold in the last five years. Uh, and so what has happened is that, you know, in the early 19, uh, 1990s, when Purdue Pharma came out with the study that said, hey, these medications aren't addictive and they're a cure all for pain, they're going to save the world, pain became the fifth vital sign. You know, physicians um, and people, you know, patients were probably as well requesting some form of help and the physician wanting to, and I'm not throwing them under the bus, but uh, we can't argue that they're part of this issue, as are we, you know, we all are because we're all in healthcare. Um, but patients were just being prescribed opiates uh, and opioid based drugs, you know, left and right, left and right. And where we are left now is that the that they we're evident, it's very evident that there's a crisis. And the solution, which is not a good one, that has come down in the last year was to cut down uh, the rates of what a physician can prescribe. And and some, it's roughly 50 MMEs up to 90 MMEs. And I'll break that down in a second. But then you think of the people who have been Um, who maybe don't have the true on substance use or opioid use disorder but have been dependent on these uh, medications to help them manage their pain now they're being told that they can't get that medication now physicians pain doctors I see this every Thursday when I go with my groups more and more of these patients are being fired by their pain management docs why because they're on higher levels of MME that they are able or willing to prescribe or manage so now you have a society of people whom we put the, the medicine on them who are now are being rejected care because of the new CDC and the guidelines that are saying that we cannot prescribe more than X amount. And you have to have certain qualifications to be able to manage that, which guess what? No one has, right? Or a very select few. Um, and then if you think of f- future considerations, right, the comment I made about neo- neonatal abstinence syndrome. What this starts to look like as they develop and grow is they start to have behavioral, cognitive, and psychological kind of delays. And, and in the ed- educational setting, it starts to, look, starts to look like things like ADHD. And then guess what happens, right? So then these folks, these kiddos, are, are probably uh, unable to get a thorough history of maybe their, how they developed. And then they start getting put on, guess what, medications for ADHD and so on and so on. So you can see how… This vicious cycle around overprescribing uh, and where we uh, could potentially be heading towards in the future, uh, which is doesn't not as uh, favorable as we you know we would hope.
1: No, you would like to think that uh, <clears throat> the worst has come and we're on our way out, but the statistics, obviously, you share are not all that encouraging, and should be more motivation for us to to see um, if we can get direct access and get people on the front end with our physicians and our primary care folks and put them on maybe a different path. Although of course opioids have their appropriate use and I don't think we can completely demonize them. And I know um, that's not your necessary perspective, but of course it's been out of control to say the least um, as far as how bad it got and how bad it unfortunately continues to get in some cases as far as the downstream effects. Now we're seeing, like you said with the neonatal neonates and others who are in the, the, whole life development then you know that can be a huge problem so right um curious uh you mentioned opioid use disorder and then there's you know you hear people talking opioid dependence i'm wondering if you can clear that up for folks as far as what that what the differences are and how they might see that in their clinical practice
2: yeah sure so um Dependence, right? So by definition, it's a physiological adaptation to a substance and you experience it and you know, you're experiencing it because you have withdrawal symptoms. Um, You know, so uh, an example could be, hey, uh, Susie is dependent on her morning coffee and she has to have, you know, two cups of coffee a day. And if she doesn't have it on a certain day, she's going to have headaches, headaches. Uh, fuzziness in her brain, you know, not maybe thinking as clearly. And that's a a form of of dependence to a substance. And that's a form of withdrawal, normal physiological body adaptation. Um, Opioid use disorder is under the umbrella of substance use disorder. And so um, when you start to think of substance use disorder, you start to think a little bit more around addiction. Um, And addiction has now become, you know, past the you know so during this uh set first opioid crisis they thought that uh, opioid use disorder was just a an issue of moral fiber that people just you know they just didn't care. They had low ethics, low morals, and they were just taking these substances. It wasn't until the late 1960s that, um, I forget who deemed it, that uh, addiction is a, is a chronic disease, right? And it's a chronic disease that deals with the brain circuitry around um, reward, motivation, risk, and memory, memory and, and all that circuitry as it works together. And <clears throat> what you end up seeing with um, with opioid use disorder under this realm of substance use and addiction, is that there are um, you start to see the behavioral changes, the psychological changes associated to that substance. Uh, There's a DSM 10 criteria that lists out what it is to the signs and symptoms that you would need to be classified under low, moderate, and high. I don't know these off the top of my head, but I wrote them down because there is is something compelling about these signs and symptoms. So if you have less than three, you're considered low. If you have um, more, I think it's four to six, uh, moderate, and anything more than that, high. The first four symptoms that they list, by nature of the opioid, the vast majority of the people can be classified as having moderate risk opioid use disorder. Um, because it's the first one is taking, longer, taking larger amounts for a longer period. Guess what? We are prescribing 30, 60 to 100 pills a day of these opioids and it takes roughly five days to develop dependence you know, so if it's intended to be taken for a short dose, we have been prescribing these larger doses, which has led to kind of fueling the dependence, if, if you will. My theory, my speculation, right? Uh, persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down and control use. Well, guess what? Some of the side effects are opioids, are tolerance and opioid-induced hyperalgesia, and you develop dependence. So it's going to be harder for you Inherently to cut down on your use, and then exhibits very clearly uh, tolerance and withdrawals. Well, if it takes five days to be to develop uh, dependence, which leads to symptoms of withdrawals, and it's very simply that you develop tolerance. You know, very quickly you can start to someone could say and argue that this person has four out of the ten, and that they are under the moderate criteria of opioid use disorder. Um, the others are the are the ones that are. Um, the kind of like the psychological and social implications. Like, you know, you start missing work and you start taking time out of your day to seek out use and to find the substance. You start to have, uh, impaired relationships with family, friends, and loved ones. Those are the DSM criteria for uh, opioid use disorder, which is once again, it's under the umbrella of uh, addiction and substance use disorder, um, which has now been more accurate, uh, Maybe more accurately defined through uh, neuroscience uh, as more of a once again a chronic disease, right? Um, and so, dependence is just the physiological adaptation that exhibits withdrawal symptoms. Opioid use disorder is 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 a chronic illness, a chronic disease.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important thing. I think uh, most folks that are in the grips of it would prefer not to be, but uh, can get to be a pretty dark and challenging place. And I'm sure you've heard some. Challenging stories, just navigating what you do on a day, uh, every Thursday, it sounds like, basis. And I am uh, i mean, kudos to you for, for stepping in there and helping some folks that are in some serious need of it. Um, I'm curious, obviously, we're physios. We don't write prescriptions, at least here in the U.S., unless you're in the U.K. And you, but you're, even then, I don't think they're writing uh, that level of narcotic type prescription. I'm curious, <coughs> what, what role uh, do you think um, we can do? Or we can have, I should say, in addressing this and maybe moving us in a better direction.
2: Yeah, I think <clears throat> um, you know, it, with with everything, like I always get back to this thought about um, you know Fight Club. Like the first rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Uh, you know, it, physical therapy. The first rule about physical therapy is you don't talk about physical therapy. That's what it seems like, right? Like we're poor marketers. Like we don't do a good job of self promotion. You know, I was listening to you and Jerry earlier, like. Um, we, you, I think you made the comment that um, you know we sell a service, we provide a service, and by definition, you know we are essentially salesmen, and our service can be knowledge, it can be X, Y, Z, and 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 I think our role uh, in this space, and I'm going I'm using our role as the healthcare provider, the conservative care provider. The conservative care provider for me is a physio, is a chiro, is a massage therapist. It's those people uh, that work with people who have pain, but they don't write prescriptions. Uh, I I firmly believe that our role in this space is drawing awareness, is education, and then ultimately empowering people. Um, So how do we draw awareness? Well, one, we have to become aware ourselves. But then once we're aware, we have to make our patients become aware. Uh, and some of that might come in the form of education. So if you have a patient that comes into your clinic and he's post-op total knee replacement day 15 and he's still taking his pain medication, I would tell you know I, th- I would recommend that we have a conversation about that. Do you feel that you still need to take this pain medication? Is this pain medication helping you? Um, how were you know what were you prescribed it? And I am not by any means, when I do these things, I do not feel like I'm overstepping. I do not feel like I am recommending drugs. I am just bringing awareness to if and if not these things are working. And more often than not, what you hear is, well, I was told to get ahead of the pain, so I've I've just been taking it. Or I was told to take it before I went to PT or before I went to my chiro, so I just keep taking it. Uh, That's an example. The other piece is, too, is they don't know the effects of these medications. Uh, most of us probably don't know either I I do because I invest a lot of time in the space but bringing awareness to the side effects bringing awareness that people can develop tolerance Uh, you know this idea that hey it it took me it used to be able to get through my morning with one cup of coffee now it takes me three well the opioids are the same way to manage your three out of ten pain uh, it may take uh, one pill of hydrocodone and then in two months it may take three But the patient believes that something must still be wrong with me because they are never told that this is a side effect of the medication. Um, The patient's perception is that I'm still broken or I still need fixing or something is wrong. Um, You know, these are a few examples of where we have these conversations. You know, if a patient comes into my clinic, uh, if a patient comes into your clinic, I would recommend that uh, you draw awareness to the, the, to the problem. And obviously, and it's done in a more of a kind of motivational interviewing education style. Um, but I think that's one thing that's, that's really huge that I, I don't feel like a lot of us do. You know, some, some conservative care practitioners may not even gather a medication list when you come see them, and reviewing that with the patient and letting them know what is this medication for and the side effects and so forth. Um, I think those are just a few little practical uh, things that that it it goes back to us drawing awareness, us identifying those folks, and these could be the ones that are on it. Um, For the ones that aren't on it, is letting them know the same damn thing, right? Hey, down the road, if you get an injury or if you start to have some pain, you know, why don't you give me a call, shoot me an email before you run to the ER and they prescribe you, you know, some tramadol or give you some morphine to deal with a bout of severe pain. You know, those are maybe some examples. Uh, the empowering point, uh, I think, stems from education as well as um, what I started with, that um Addiction is still heavily stigmatized, as is mental illness. Oh, and guess what? People that have mood disorder are fifty times more likely to also have subsequent substance use disorder. They almost go hand in hand, uh, and and it's heavily stigmatized. and And often there may be some underlying trauma, physical, mental, emotional, uh, or they're just they're just stuck, and they 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 lack hope, they lack uh, confidence, they lack self esteem. And guess what? They're also dependent on high doses of medications, which they probably don't feel well about that they're taking. Um, and so through awareness, through education, through providing hope, we're able to empower people uh, to be able to maybe get on the front end or start to get on the other end or the other side of these things Um a little long-winded, and we could break it down a little bit more, but uh, those are just some thoughts off the top of my head.
1: No, I think all that's great stuff. Um, You you spoke a little bit about opioid induced hyperalgesia, and I think that's kind of a concept that sometimes I don't think uh, we as physios and folks quite grasp 100%. Um, I'm just curious, how does that go? Maybe you can give folks a little bit of background on it, and then maybe how would you approach a discussion with the patient because, you know, or, or to kind of point out that, you know, sometimes these medicines actually raise your pain level out of some of the mechanisms that go on with
2: it. Yeah. So there, there is some debate. I'm on, I'm on one side of the spectrum. There's another side, but there is some debate that there is no such thing as opioid use, hyperalgesia, that it is a form uh, or a, a manifestation of tolerance. Um, but I was, I was, reading through a couple of my articles before we jumped on the call because I knew we were going to talk about this. And there are instances in people who are opioid naive that exhibit signs and symptoms of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So what is that? So hyperalgesia, by definition, right, it's an uh, exaggerated or magnified pain response to a painful stimulus. Um, So you think if I pinch you on your arm and you say the stupid pain scale that we hate, but just to make it understandable, it's a 2 out of 10 pain – If you're having a hyperalgesic response, that same amount of mechanical stimuli may induce a four or five out of 10 pain. Right. And what ends up happening with, with the medication is that one, you develop tolerance. So it takes more and more and more to manage the same amount of pain. Well, while you're increasing your tolerance, you're also depleting your own endogenous opioid stores. So your own ability to downregulate uh, anything that's noxious, if you will. Now, what can happen is that when you take opioid, in, uh, when you take an opiate or an opioid, is that you have that initial dump. It's part of it is a dopamine dump. Part of it is you get release of uh, <clears throat> endogenous opioids, which create that initial response of pain reduction. But then, what ends up happening is that at your like system is trying to get back to that baseline. And in that process, it's depleted of anything that can downregulate. So over a period of time, your body is more sensitive to, uh, mechanical, uh, noxious stimuli and thermal cold stimuli. And so with a patient, I will simply let them know kind of this idea of, of, uh, what I mentioned of, of you get a dump. I see you get a dump of feel-good neurohormones and feel-good neurotransmitters that are providing a relief of your symptoms. And in the process, as they're trying to catch up to get back to the baseline that they had, your system's going to be overly sensitive because it had that initial dump and it doesn't have any more to add to if there is an additional um, uh, noxious stimulus. Um, and, And what's important to note is that they ha- There's been studies that show this with acute use, uh, with chronic use. It, it is dose-dependent, so the higher the dose the person is, the more likely they are to experience these things. Um, and dose-dependent, um, dose – dose, uh, I might be blanking on one other thing that's like a big uh, thing here, but, but in, in, in short, it happens to, to most people who, who take opioids.
1: Yeah, no, I think it makes complete sense that once you like dump the natural opioid stores there, and which are our are natural pain relievers, that our body can shut down. And when we deplete our stores of that, there's going to be a period of time where, guess what, we don't have any good pain off chemicals dumping into the spinal cord, so we're going to be more sensitive to to the mechanical, noxious, and different stimulus you, you speak of. So, yeah, I, and I think that's a good way to kind of explain it to a patient as far as discussing that and, you know, giving them some... I think you can get kind of sciencey with the patient a little bit, you know, within some good layman's terms and, and still be able to get a, the point across to that, hey, that's probably, you know, your body's going to be playing catch-up and you're going to be in a situation where it's going to be more sensitive. And uh, Yeah. Uh, I'm curious with um, <clears throat> the folks you're seeing, folks who are on taper, so folks that are coming off uh, opioids. I'm curious what... Um, you've seen to be, in your experience, what you've seen to be successful for those folks who are um, coming off and, you know, having some of the struggles that folks are having when they're on a taper process?
2: Yeah. Um, the the short answer is um, one thing that I forgot to mention is that the the group that I work with, it's, it's a multidisciplinary clinic. So these folks are getting structured taper they are getting counseling sessions uh and then they get the kind of this uh pain session as well as some of them get pt uh it's their choice and and a lot come over sometimes some don't that's that's fine i still see some of these people do amazing without PT. And then I see some who may, you know, maybe I, we coach them I coach them through a breakthrough in their physical capacity. Um, but that's, you know, that's just a piece of the puzzle. Some people may need that. Some may not. Right. It, It speaks to the individualistic care, human centered care. Um, but the, the taper process can be tricky because, um, at least the way that we do it is every Tuesday, these folks will have a taper it's it's scheduled and there's a, a physician who guides that um sometimes it, 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 the best thing that these people need is to be heard uh and, and more often than not that's probably the thing because life sucks uh i'm sure uh, i'm sure you've experienced a pretty bad hangover i've experienced a pretty bad hangover the way that they describe The withdrawal symptoms sometimes from the opioid taper is like a hangover on steroids where you feel like you're going to die, but like really die. Uh, It's just nasty. And in these instances, anything that provides relief, anything that provides comfort, anything that provides hope is what we do. If it's, hey, we just sit there and listen, we sit there and listen. Sometimes like if they're in my clinic because this has happened and they say, I I just need I, I just I need some relief of anything heat in a intense unit has helped me in the past. And even if it's just like 30 minutes and it makes me feel good and maybe I doze off and take a little bit of a nap, guess what? You get it. Um, If they want some, you know, I was working with that um, spinal manipulation help them uh, because you, you get this full body, full body aches and pains. And we know that a manipulation just creates global analgesic response, right? There's nothing very, Specific about it, right? But that's a, a relief. That even if it's a short amount of relief, that then they, they get it. Um, I personally navigate that situation based on what the patient feels they can handle and based on what they feel they can eat if they're if I'm seeing them in the clinic. And then when we're on the other side, um, we just we just listen and reassure them that it will get better. And, and it and it sometimes um, just listening and providing that. Constant reassurance that it, it, it will get better. Your body and your system is just freaking out, and and with time it will get better. So um, those are a few things that that throughout this journey that we have done and utilized that it, that it seems to be helpful. And and usually, you know, the vast majority of the time the people come out on the other end of it. It just sometimes it takes a little bit more time.
1: Yeah. No. Um. I'm curious with, you know, some you work in a unique setting that's got the, the resources that you mentioned, counseling and physicians and psychology and, and counseling and, you know, other things. Um, I'm just curious, like, for those of us who don't have that, I mean, I have a little, not quite obviously in that specialized of an opioid uh, setting, but um, for those who, who might be working on an island, we don't have any of those type of specialties, yet we're seeing someone who's struggling mightily um, with it. Anything that you could you know, give as far as advice for those folks. So maybe, obviously we're not gonna change their medication regimen, but maybe we can be somebody who champions some different things for somebody and maybe helps them, you know, maybe hopefully make a positive step. But I mean, obviously patients don't look towards us for advice on their opioids that much. Um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on maybe how somebody who doesn't have those resources could go about maybe creating a positive change with somebody.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a difficult situation to be in and, and probably one that I'm not the best equipped to answer, but I, I can offer um, maybe some guidance. Is, is I know there is, and I remember someone in our group before asked a question, you know, there's like psychology, Psych Today, for example, that you Google, you Google search that and you put your zip code and they'll find the nearest provider, um, some of which offer telehealth, some which don't, some which take some insurances, some which don't. Um, there's There are expanding telehealth practices that, that you can kind of look into, at least to reach out if you're in a rural setting or if you're in an island. Um, <clears throat> the other thing would be, I mean, the the end game is to get the person well right? The end game is to help them. And, you know, if, if you really sit down and listen, we're not counselors, right? Um, but I like to say that I practice in that gray space. I'm a psychologically informed therapist. And I bet most people who are, uh, conservative care providers, massage, physio, chiros have been in that scenario where the best thing for that patient was just to listen to just to hear them, to let them vent, to tell their story. Um, and so, although they may, that may not help um, you know, deprescribe someone or taper someone off, uh, but it's, it's a reminder that, that oftentimes that medication is being taken for a reason, whether it's a conscious or subconscious thing. And there could be something deep down, and that's what we have found with our groups at, at our place, at New Hope, like nine out of 10 of them have some deep underlying trauma physical, mental, emotional trauma that perpetuated a neurocognitive, you know, kind of reward uh, feedback loop mishap that has led to where they are now. Um, So I I don't know, that was kind of a tangent answer. I don't know if that was practical. But I I mean, I would say just try to tap into whatever resources, man, like Google, you can Google search anything these days, and uh, maybe find some telehealth providers that can help. And, and, and really just the, the more the, what I find is that the more the patients know, the better they do. If it's about their pain, if it's about their opioid use, uh, if it's about their exercise prescription, whatever, you know the more informed they are, obviously done in the right way, often the better they do. Um, yeah. So just try to champion for, and utilize whatever you know, resources you might be able to find.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it. I think with the internet, I gotta imagine with this opioid crisis, there's going to be some things that people can reach out to if they're you know looking to do something different. Or fo- I gotta imagine there's going to be resources that don't require them to have a clinic next door. But like you said, telehealth and other things hopefully we will be giving some folks uh, you know something to reach out to if they're really struggling. Um, and, and I did I it.
2: did just think <clears throat> of something. I think if I'm not mistaken, Beth Darnell on her website, I think she has some whether it's one or two it's her or someone else and if i remember i'll send it to you but when i've gone on her website she's got a book or two that like outline steps for for recovery and how to help you kind of self-manage uh so that may be a resource beth darnell has a, a lot of amazing stuff out there yeah. uh that uh, on her website and, and if i'm not mistaken she has like a like a self-recovery type book <clears throat>
1: Yeah, no, I, I I do think Beth over in Stanford does a ton of stuff. Uh, uh, Beth Darnell, amazing yeah. psychologist, who's kind of leading some of the ways on it, and it's it's interesting to see she's almost been labeled as like an anti-opioid person. Who's and you yeah, I just see people who are struggling with opioids, and you're trying to tell us we don't. And it's just it's interesting to see just in social media and and people when it's it's a pretty scary situation for folks like you said that you pointed out who are you know been dependent on high doses and then they're all of a sudden fired um and then yeah. hey do your best like good god like talk about leaving people out out to to a bad situation man gosh yeah and that's where it's you nuts. hear all these horror stories of moving on to worse things than opioids uh, or to right. <laughs> and you know that type of stuff but um w- one last question before we kind of wrap her up uh tonight Um, Just some practical things. What do you think some practical things some folks here can do to start screening for those at risk, Um, maybe start working on some of those behavioral change things around their medication and rehab, Um, just so we can start making that maybe dent in that opioid crisis that uh, you've nicely pointed out is not as
2: good, is still not as good as we'd like it to be. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm just curious
1: what your thoughts are there.
2: So that's a good question. I think that is another place that um, we have a a place in this space, right? All conservative care practitioners, you know, if if you're a massage therapist and someone goes to see you, you know, you you can ask a few simple questions that are going to give you some insights as to if a person is at risk for opioid use disorder um, or, or for substance use disorder for that matter. Um, and, and it starts with, it's, it's four or five big things, one, which is out of our control. There's a genetic heritability, uh, up to, in some you read up to 70%. Uh, and then the associated environmental factors of that, which we can become aware of, um, you know, asking individuals if they or their family has the history of substance use disorder, right? If you don't talk what, what First of all, Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. If you don't talk about it, if you don't ask, you're never going to freaking know, right? And it's just as simple as asking a question. And yes, they might say no day one, and someone's going to say, that's not my place to ask. But if you don't freaking ask, you're not going to know, right? And so um, asking, hey, you know, do you have a personal family history of substance use disorder? No. Do you have a personal family history of alcohol use or smoking? No. Those who have a personal family history of those things are more likely to develop or have the tendency to to lean towards dependence or you know sub, or opioid use disorder, um, mood disorder. I, I talked about uh, had depression. Those who have um, depression, uh, one of the studies says fifty times uh, or fifty percent of those who had depression had uh, a substance use disorder as well. Right. So who on their who on their health screen is asking if folks have depression? And if so, is it being managed and are they, you know, satisfied with how it's being managed and and how is it being managed? Right. Um, Because if you don't manage the depression, you're less likely to be able to help with their pain if that's what they're seeing you for or their subsequent possible substance use disorder. So one is the family history. Two is mood disorder and the presence of it. Um, Three is some of Beth Darnell's work, which I read, uh, indicated that women who have pain scales of over 4 out of 10 and greater than 10 on pain catastrophizing scale uh, are more likely to use larger amounts of or require larger amounts of opiates, right? So that's another way that you can screen, which for us physios, we get some more information around pain beliefs and some of those things. And then the other thing which uh, you can screen for is um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, Once again, I I am not saying it is my place to treat the trauma associated to that. But if I become aware that someone has that on the table, I know that this individual is more susceptible to it. And this is another – I wrote this one down um, because it was the statistics. But a portion of drug use problems – addictions and IV drug use attributed to ACEs adverse childhood experiences is 56%, 64%, and 67% attributed to the adverse childhood experiences. So drug use problems 56, addiction 64%, IV drug use 67%. Um, there is a a tool called the opioid risk tool, which I've read some studies that are go for it, go against it. Uh, uh, at least in regards to aberrant use, like misuse, um, but it still hits on all those things that, that I just mentioned. And that may take a d- an additional five minutes of screening, right, maybe, maybe even more. And if, for those of us who I will be a direct access practitioner come September 1, I'll be able to see patients uh, without a physician referral. You know, those are a few uh, ways to really screen out uh, individuals that may be at risk. And, And I would encourage those to do it if they're opioid naive, if they have never taken opioids or if they are on opioids, because either way it goes back to how do we address it by making it common knowledge that they are more susceptible by making them aware that, hey, there's a possibility that this can happen because of your family history or your, you know, XYZ. Um, which then you're bringing it to, to the, to the awareness of those that are on it. And maybe down the road, five years from now, Susie remembers that Mark told her that, Hey, because of X, Y, Z, she was more susceptible to this. So maybe in the, if she goes to her doctor, cause she's having back pain and the doctor tries to give her tramadol, she's going to say, no, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like it's a way that, that it kind of comes back full circle. And I think it can be done in outpatient and in, inpatient settings. I think it can be done anywhere. It can be done at a massage place. It can be done at a chiropractic, at a physio. Um, I don't see why not at least. But those are a few ways to really screen and try to tease those things out.
1: <clears throat> no, those are great. And I think, um, <clears throat> man, it's just tough. You know, I think we got to be comfortable asking uncomfortable questions, you know. And I don't think they need to be uncomfortable. We really are a good human being. You know, these yeah. are things we should be asking. Like, hey, do you have a history of somebody in your family who's dealt with substance use disorder or alcohol or smoking issues? Um, yeah, just and say, yeah. yeah, I just the reason I ask, I just want to know, just because we we don't we we were trying to prevent anybody else from having to deal with some of the horrible things we're seeing with opioids and, and things, and uh, you know, we want nothing but the best for you. So yeah, I think there's some right very good. Is it-
2: you know, it's, it's a it's a general health screen. And then like you said, it's, it goes back to like letting them know why you're doing it Like yeah. if you're just asking all these random questions, they're like, what the hell? Right, but then you say hey, here's what I'm doing, right? I'm really thinking about your future and your health and your well-being and I know that you're not on these but because you answered XYZ you are uh, susceptible to becoming to developing a, a dependence or a disorder so I wanted you to become aware of that so that you can advocate for yourself in the future. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, that's all it takes. <clears throat> Absolutely. Just. Uh, that, that sounded so easy, but it's not, right? Well, like it's, uh, there's,
1: <laughs> there's, there's some nuance, but, you know, sometimes it is. It's just, hey, I'm worried about you. I want you to do well. I want you to be an, a rock star going forward in your life. And these are things that I think are important for you to know. Um, just because, you know, and it's not because Marcos Lopez Lopez said so it's because the research that I, I read and, and, you know, stuff that, I mean, you can, that's what I try to tell folks. This isn't just my opinion here. This is stuff that's been pretty scientifically proven by a lot smarter people than myself. So yeah, no, I, th- I think that's, that's, you know, just being a good, caring human being. That's stuff that we look out for, for our families. I sh- don't, why wouldn't we look out for our patients the same way? Um, la- any Last parting shots you have here for the folks as far as maybe pointing them in a the direction of some resources. I know you already pe- uh, pointed out Beth Darnell's website, so I'll try to link that in the comments down here. Um, but anything else you think folks can do here or any advice you'd have for people who are dealing with some of the challenges that opioid addiction and opioid use can bring to the uh, clinical setting that some of these folks practice in?
2: yeah. Um, <clears throat> I did compile a list of resources at some point that I'll send back to you, and maybe you could put it on there. They're primarily local, so for those that are international, it may not be as as helpful. But there's websites that you can go to get sponsorships, uh, to fund people to go to clinics to try to uh, taper off. Uh, there's a few of those avenues that are, there aren't many, but there are some. So that's that's a start. And the other thing is is uh, you know the last you know bit of information that I hope that. Uh, People take away from this that it's 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 what you guys preach all the time. It's what we preach all the time it's human centered care and if we listen if we uh, provide hope if we try to empower our patients and, and Know that this is the hardest thing that they're gonna do in their life That's what they all have said not only are they navigating the journey of chronic pain, but they are navigating the journey of managing a substance that is being dramatically uh, control is being radically controlled by the government uh, to the point where we're at that extreme that we are. Um, so I would encourage us and I would encourage those who uh, are in this situation to try to be as patient as possible, uh, to listen, to provide hope and compassion, because it, it is the hardest thing that these people are doing. And once they start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, they frickin' take off. And it is an awesome experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not in exactly your setting, but when you see that light and that hope hit some of these people, I mean, it makes this light bulb. Oh my God. And it's such a rewarding best, most rewarding care I've ever been involved in by far. And I know you're seeing it, uh, you know, a lot over where you're at with the opioid clinic. So kudos to you for, for being, uh, you know, one of our pioneering physios to kind of really get in there and start really, um, I know there's others, but, uh, I think you're probably one of the ones that I know that are really maybe on the front lines of trying to get into, uh, you know, the PT's role in that. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for spending some time with us tonight. I think, it, uh, folks listening got some good things out of it. Um, hopefully some things they can take back to the clinic and help some people that they're working with that might be struggling with opioids on their, um, uh, on their own situations.
2: Yeah, right on, man. Well, thanks for having me, and I hope you get over that cold. I'm working
1: on it. I'm working on it. Thank you much, man. You guys all out there, have a great night. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. This has been another episode of the Modern
0: Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karjula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.